Hello everyone and welcome to the last episode in our series on the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. My name is Duncan Rayburn and I need to be honest about the fact that I have not managed to do everything that I had set out to do for this series on the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. For starters, I had planned to give far more detail about how each of the principles of this Enneagram of Mimetic Desire um, would relate to each Enneotype, but I found that the, the planned episodes would have been too long and overly technical if I had done that, and I think that would have made for some rather difficult listening. I had also hoped to get to the issue of how this strange mix of the Enneagram and mimetic theory might illuminate how we understand the instinctual types of the Enneagram, which is something that I haven't touched on here on this podcast. I have given this a great deal of thought, and I am going to mention some general principles here later on, but I had to sacrifice on detail again, because again, it, it just got too technical. I'm going to leave you with this overview format, this more general format, um, and I aim to conclude the series with this episode. Um, and I guess this means that you will need to take some of the bits and pieces I've given you and, and try and figure out some of the detail uh, all on your own. And I, I think that's not a bad thing because um, you can figure out more directly how it relates to your own lived experience and your relationships so even if this is not totally complete, I think it is as complete as it needs to be, if only for now. It is possible that I'll manage at some point, at a later date, to pull all of the stuff I've left out together uh, with what I've included into something like a book on this way of seeing the Enneagram, something more accessible maybe, but I'm not going to make any promises along those lines. If you happen to be in publishing and you want to offer me a book deal, let me know. <laughs> thats uh, I don't know if I'm joking about that or not. I will say, though, that in a way, I just couldn't help feel uh, that there's a sense of urgency about other things that I want to explore with you. I've been going through a kind of a, a wilderness phase, which has included all the dreaded dryness that you'd expect from such a phase. But it has also allowed me the space to receive some some insights into things that I've been grappling with for a very long time. So starting in the next episode, we're going to get into some really, really substantial life-altering, mind-bending stuff about the nature of truth, reality, the meaning of life, and finding our way through what seems to me to be an unusually complex and even difficult time in global history. I think the world has become more complicated than ever before. And there are, of course, some things to discuss and a few more questions to answer, all in good time. And in any case, this is the 100th episode of this podcast. I think that's amazing. How did we get here? But I think that is a good enough indication that we need to set out to explore all kinds of thrilling new territory. But as we close off this Enneagram of Mimetic Desire series, I want to speak about the principle that we find at a number that we haven't discussed yet, namely point six on the Enneagram. I'm calling it the principle of authority, which is very easy to explain. So I'm going to talk about that and uh, the last principle of nonviolent communication, as well as some just brief ideas around the instinctual variance and how that might affect how we see the world. 
So it is a rather strange thing to notice uh, about people, but it is worth noticing. We all need authority. Some of you will kick against that line, but it's true. Even the most rebellious people on earth seem to rebel in the name of some kind of authority. The principle of authority is basically the idea that we are secondary and dependent and always subservient to something or someone. This is an aspect of our nature that is very uncomfortable to admit sometimes, but it is vital to admit. Psychological experiments done by people like Solomon Ash and Stanley Milgram confirm what sociologists have also found, namely that authority has a, a unique kind of gravitational pull. But there's a funny thing about authority, which is that leaders are people who have a unique ability to follow their followers. If you put this differently, a leader is someone who is able to disappoint her followers at just the right pace. If she disappoints them too quickly, she will be deposed. In mimetic theory, the general idea is that the leader borrows the aggregate desires of the crowd. You could, in a way, say that the leader is the natural result of the aggregate of the desires of the crowd. But this places the leader in a horrifically precarious position. We know, for instance, from anthropology that the king was always a kind of scapegoat on pause. The leader would inevitably become the scapegoat. And honestly, what leader in the global village is not a scapegoat in some form? It's almost as if some people get elected simply because other people need a punching bag. Moses, that famous Enneotype 6 who became Israel's greatest prophet, was incredibly reluctant to lead his people, to a large degree, I think, because he was highly aware of this. He knew that the leader was potentially always a scapegoat. He was, not without reason, rather terrified. But you see him in his story grow into the great man he was because his faith deepened rather than his fear. Not his faith in himself. Placing faith in yourself is always a bit stupid. The slogan, believe in yourself, is only really followed by lunatics. Anyway, I think Enneotype Sixes are highly sensitive to the ambivalent role of the leader. They see the need for the leader, they know that we need authority, and they tend to gravitate to authority figures out of a natural desire to seek safety. But they are also among the first to sense the leader's inability to really meet the needs of the people, whoever they may be. Sixes want authorities to be authorities, but they distrust them. And the real reason for their distrust is that sixes know, as the rest of us should, that to place your faith in a leader is really to misplace your faith. Of course, the real need for a transcendent authority, namely God, is easily displaced by a desire for some imminent sense of safety. And this is also something that sixes know, if only unconsciously. Many of our conflicts center around getting caught up in the merely imminent, that is, within the merely apparent, what is most obvious. We default to our defaults, which aren't really telling us in general to get beyond the obvious or beyond ourselves. And the honest truth is that conflicts will always multiply until we learn to get beyond our defaults, which is to say, we need to learn to copy the desires of the transcendent God who is not in rivalry with anyone. 
and whose desire for us is wholeness, not brokenness. Yes, I get how flimsy this might sound to some of you, but it's actually something that sounds pretty good to me. I think the principle of authority basically highlights how important it is that we know where to place our faith and in whom to place our faith. And this is really a question of who to love, because love is really the antidote to the fear that the sixes tend uh, to struggle with. With this in mind, it'll be good to get to that last principle of nonviolent communication. So far, we've covered step one, observe. Step two, describe emotions, not positions. And step three, identify needs. So now it's time to get to the last step, which is to make a request. This fits really well, I think, with Enneotype 6s, who are brilliantly attuned to their need for help. Sixes sometimes resent the fact that they feel so dependent on others, but the truth is, we are all dependent. Sixes are just brave enough to admit it. Obviously, codependence has its problems, but dependence itself is an honest and humble acknowledgement that we were never made to be isolated and alone in the world. By the time we get to this part of the nonviolent communication process, this part of making a request, a lot of work should already have been done, which I discussed in the previous episode. I know that people make all kinds of demands when they're angry, but those demands are only likely to be met with resistance if we still have our hands around everyone's throats. And in any case, demand is not the same thing as a request, as I'll get to shortly. But once everyone feels understood at the level of what they genuinely feel and need, it'll help to get to something very concrete, namely what to actually do. In the context of mimetic theory, the idea is going to be to state a desire that is to be imitated. To do this, it helps to stick to clear, positive, concrete language. The Enneagram is amazing at providing something of a guideline for this for each type, but there is a problem here too. The desires and needs articulated by the Enneagram are fairly general, and it's not exactly going to help to work with the general when making a request. So if you're a two, for example, you know that your core need, real need, is to be loved. And this is coupled usually with a desire to help. That's kind of masking that underlying need. Well, the two needs to actually say how they would like to be loved. And this can take some work and quite a few conversations. If a five articulates a desire to be understood, well, again, that's not going to amount to a request because it doesn't call for a specific action. A better request would be, I would like you to tell me what you heard me say. If a six says that they have a desire to to feel supported. What is the deeper need and what about the specifics and not just the general? You'll be amazed when you start to pay attention how many people articulate their feelings without actually having any real sense of what they need. You'll be amazed at how often you articulate your feelings without knowing what you need. But it's worth taking the trouble to figure it out. It also helps immensely to articulate your needs while you are articulating your feelings. Again, this will take practice. Without mentioning your feelings, your request may sound a bit more like a demand. Eights and ones in particular should pay attention 
to this. If your request comes across as a demand, people get faced with the choice to either conform or rebel. That's the reason why so many teenagers tend to respond the way they do. Tell your teenager forcefully to clean up their room and see if you get a smile, a nod, and a gentle spirit. Highly unlikely. <laughs> to get rid of the demand, it'll help to first notice what will happen if the request isn't met by the other person. Is there going to be punishment or guilt tripping, maybe, or judgment? When people talk about what you should do or what is supposed to happen or when they talk about deserving or rights, it's very obvious then that the request has become a demand. When someone tells you to do something because it is your job, just as they say they have a job to do, well, again, the request is not really a request because there's no freedom in it. When it's a request and it's not met with agreement, you can tell because there will be understanding and mutual compassion. In the end, the objective of any conversation or working through any conflict is to arrive at a point of empathic communication and understanding. The relationship, in other words, is the primary goal. In a lot of disagreements, people often get caught up in the goal of being right. And it's a cliche that marriage counselors often use, but I think it's a pretty profound cliche. You get to choose, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? Um, well, if you want to work through any conflict, the goal to keep in mind is the relationship itself. Even if we get a lot of the details wrong, this goal will keep us in check. I think I mentioned something along these lines before, but the general idea here is this. Tell the person, though not necessarily in words, maybe just by being attentive and genuinely listening, that you want to understand them, that you want to endeavor to find what works for both of you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll end up being best friends or even particularly close, of course, but it'll certainly go some way towards making good things happen. Be the model of the kind of person you want to see in the situation and the relationship. Who knows, but maybe your desires will mimetically transform and shape or at least significantly affect the desires of others around you. The vital thing in all of this is presence. I know we've transformed the world into a world of messaging and voice messages and video chats. And the sad thing about this is that there is nothing to compare with or to be a substitute for actual presence. We don't merely listen with our ears after all, we, we listen with our lives, with our whole being. This requires a level of vulnerability that many of us are not necessarily going to be comfortable with, but it's the vulnerability of presence that'll open up a genuine opportunity for communion and community, and as I've been getting at during this whole series, for conflict resolution. And with all of this in mind, it'll probably be a good idea to talk briefly about instincts and instinctual variants. As I said, I was hoping to get to this in more detail, describing how this relates to each type and their mimetic desires and all of that stuff, but the general principle of it will have to suffice for now. I think you can just figure out how this applies to you. The starting point is this. We all operate instinctively, which is another way of saying that we all have defaults. And I think that these defaults deeply affect the way that we desire. 
a la mimetic theory, as well as the way that we relate to ourselves and each other, a la the Enneagram. Each Enneotype has three so-called instinctual variants. While instinct and desire are not the same thing, understanding the fact that each Enneotype gravitates towards one particular instinct more obviously than the others will help us to better grasp how the desires of others will be channeled, and also how conflict might be exacerbated. As I've already said in this series, the self of desire that is each Enneotype is going to be prone to create a kind of mimetic field, a kind of magnetic field of desires that attracts particular desires more than it does others. Those desires will then be taken up into the current of that mimetic field. So it is vital to regard instinct as a kind of added propensity for desiring the desire of the other. Each of the instincts, self-preservation, social and sexual, those are the instincts, will tend to focus on a particular comparative or point of departure for making comparisons, which is especially important to notice in terms of mimetic theory. The dominant comparative of self-preservation types is the world versus me. The dominant comparative of social types is us, that is the group, versus the others, that is the rest of them. And the dominant comparative of sexual subtypes is us, that is two people in partnership versus and or with the world and or reality. In terms of mimetic theory, the structure of these comparatives reveals a particular scapegoating tendency, which is a tendency to automatically, often thoughtlessly, presume a division that may not even be there, such that something or more commonly someone or some group of people gets regarded as disposable. Self-preservation types will tend to conform to the role of the scapegoat and or the potential scapegoat. They are at an instinctive level, those who will be picked on or victimized by the world. Although not always articulated in these terms, self-pres types will have an overriding, although often unconscious, sense that they will be at some point overruled by the world. They therefore seek to align themselves with the world in such a way that it will not get the better of them. Self-preservation types tend to be particularly conflict-avoidant, although this does not mean that they have life without conflict. Unfortunately, none of us gets to uh, avoid conflict in this way. Then social types will tend to conform to the structure that does the scapegoating. They will tend to be pro-crowd people, although, of course, it depends on the crowd. Their being in favor of a crowd will mean a tendency to conform to that which excludes either an individual or a group or a system of ideas. Finally, sexual subtypes will tend in unhealthy states, of course, to adopt a rather precarious double role as either scapegoat, like self-preservation types, or scapegoater, or as somehow both. Sexual subtypes, in other words, will have a particular predilection for siding with the minority, let's say a counter-ideology, against the majority. That would be something like the dominant ideology. Sexual types in their more unhealthy states may even tend to adopt the position of an army of one, as if they are capable of exacting vengeance with an intimate other against the majority or crowd. 
Some of the more aggressive or hostile types are sexual subtypes, especially sexual ones, fours, and eights. Sexual types are, in a sense, quite conflict-prone. That is, they're prone to see the world as being a site of conflict and competition. They may not, however, participate in this conflict in an obvious way, because a lot depends on their enneotype. So, naturally, the precise way that these mimetic structures play out depends on specific people and the way that they respond to their instincts. More mature types, for instance, will not be as dominated by their instincts as immature types are, although the instincts will always play a role in their orientation towards the world. Every single one of us has all of these instincts, but one of these will be more dominant and the others subordinate. The instincts can be said to be stacked in a way, in service naturally of the mimetic pool of their dominant desire. A sexual enneotype, for example, might have either a self-preservation instinct as its auxiliary and a social instinct as its tertiary, or a social instinct as its auxiliary and a self-pres instinct as its tertiary. I think knowing the instinctual variants can help us to discern the patterns and ruts that we tend to fall into especially since we can notice that the instincts might heighten differences between us that prevent us from properly examining the core desire that binds us, especially in conflict. Figuring out your instinctual variant from what I've already said may uh, be fairly easy, but let me go into a little bit more detail about each instinct just so that you have a a solid idea of how it might work. First is the self-preservation instinct. This has to do with a particular attunement to material security and the drive for survival. The self-praise type will tend to be particularly attuned to desires that confirm a focus on his or her own world, relating especially to personal well-being, serenity, and comfort. Self-praise types naturally desire their own conservation, and they naturally fear anything that contradicts this conservatism, including things like poverty, illness, loss, or even annihilation. Fear and anxiety, sometimes even paranoia, are at the root of self-preservation, together with a preoccupation with coping. There's a kind of do-or-die impulse here, although this will manifest more overtly in some and less overtly in others. Self-pres types can be health fanatics, frantic planners, and logistics experts, often fond of either accumulating supplies or limiting them to what seems to be absolutely necessary. There is a tendency in self-pres types to be rather serious, but this generalization shouldn't be taken too, well, seriously. As might be guessed, by the strong presence of fear as an underlying motivation for self-preservation, It will be no surprise to you that, symbolically speaking, the self-pres instinct is most directly connected to the so-called intellect or head triad, and that's obviously types 7, 6, and 5. Then, the social instinct. This is the instinct for social connection, and this involves a particular attunement to or drive for belonging, or perhaps even a desire for status within a community. Social fluency is going to be particularly important for social subtypes. They orientate themselves towards questions of relating well, of keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. 
As a result, there will be a natural tendency in these types to prize desires that place the desiring self in conformity with a given or chosen community of people. Put differently, the focus of social enneotypes is not the self, as in self-preservation, but the group, or even the greater group, the nation or, or the world. This means that the group is the source of security for social subtypes. The group, in a way, equals self-preservation. Desires for these types thus gravitate towards social acceptance, recognition, popularity, and honor. And the fear of these types would be the opposite of such things, things like failing to belong, loneliness, low rank, a sense of inferiority, failure in general, and alienation. As with other types, fear becomes a kind of confirmation bias support system. It focuses attention on some things more than others, since these things are perceived to be more useful for coping. Social types tend to adopt a few strategies to confirm their desire for fitting in, namely a focus on what is approved of and or what is shameful. A fairly powerful sense of the difference between an in-group and an out-group will accompany this, as well as a sense of both friendship and enmity. People who achieve well are admired. People who fail to conform are not. If self-preservation types tend to have fairly low energy, social types will tend to have slightly divided energy. They will be friendly, but potentially a little bit superficial. They will be cooperative, but also a bit superficial. So what happens here, and again, I'm tending to describe the more immature versions of, of these subtypes, superficiality becomes a defense against revealing differences, which from sort of an instinctive level tend to uh, transform people into scapegoats. Self-preservation types substitute silence for superficiality. Instead of telling people what they think in a very limited way, they simply refrain from making their views known. If they happen to be particularly obstinate as people, the obstinacy of social enneotypes will be directly bound to the values system of the group. Symbolically, because social subtypes function with a strong sense of honor and shame, the social instinct is linked to the image triad, namely twos, threes, and fours on the enneagram. And then finally, there is the sexual instinct. This is the instinct for intimate connections with one person at a time. People with this instinct will tend to prize modes of desire that confirm intimacy over social fluency and self-preservation. Their desire is for closeness with unique others, seeking a soulmate and or deep friendship. Their sense of wholeness stems a great deal from their close partnerships. The corresponding fears of sexual subtypes would be being told, whether overtly or subtly, that they are unworthy, that they are not worth the time or trouble of an intimate partner. Broken relationships are particularly traumatic for them, and they feel incomplete when isolated or disconnected from some intimate other. If the preoccupation of self-pres types is coping and for social types prestige, the preoccupation for sexual subtypes is close connection. This will include matters of identity that highlight fascination, attraction, or attractiveness, passion, and self-revelation. 
As with the other instinctual variants, the strategy of sexual subtypes depends on the nature of their relationships and their level of maturity. But at its most basic, the general trend is towards either abstinence or something like promiscuity or sometimes an odd vacillation between both. This is not just literal abstinence or promiscuity, though. It can pertain to diving in wholeheartedly into an experience or a relationship or totally avoiding it. Sexual types tend to be highly imaginative and curious, and depending on what they perceive to be beneficial for their immediate relationships, either flexible or somewhat possessive, they will be higher in libido, in the Jungian, not Freudian sense, than other enneotypes in the same category, meaning simply that they they tend to be more intense than other types. There is a trend towards embodying a power-submission dynamic in sexual subtypes, even if only in the issue of responsiveness to the world. But this is embodied often in the hope that it will be overcome, that the, the world itself will be overcome. Thus, sexual subtypes, symbolically speaking, are aligned with the gut triad, namely eights, nines, and ones. The symbolism of each instinct suggests a kind of dynamic in the Enneagram that is often unnoticed and often is a reason for mistypings. A self-preservation one, for instance, will be a very six-ish one, that is, a one who is easily confused with the six, since the fear that drives the self-preservation instinct of this one will be so apparent even though it is part of the gut triad. Nevertheless, its one-ishness is not erased by this strange overlap, since its dominant ego fixation, namely ego resentment, will still be the underlying thing. I've known people who, on learning about instinctual variants, are willing to abandon their original typing simply because something of the variant resonated strongly with them. On this matter, it's important to realize that the instinctual variants are precisely that. They are variants, or to use musical terminology, they are variations on a theme. They are not proof that the original theme no longer exists. Similarly, it is possible for a head type to also have a very heady, that is fear-based, instinct. Thus, a self-pres 5 will be a particularly 5-ish 5. In other words, its five-ishness will be exaggerated by this dominant instinct. And that means that not only is it struggle with ego stinginess, but now there is on top of that horrible fixation an avaricious self-preservation instinct at play. Ego stinginess is in a sense here doubled. As this shows, sometimes it may seem like the instinctual variant can make getting away from a core fixation even more trying. But this would not be exactly the right conclusion. Every instinctual variant is easily co-opted by the ego fixation, and both the ego fixation and the instinct need to be addressed. I'm not saying, though, that everyone's journey is going to be equally difficult. It seems obvious to me that some people will struggle more than others when it comes to growing. A last point on the matter of instinct, when each of the three instincts come into play with the ego fixations of each type, they morph into something else, although they will keep the basic trajectory of the instinct intact. 
So that is basically what I wanted to to relay to you in this episode. And I know it may come across as being a little disjointed, but I'm also aware that it's basically the best I've been able to manage for the moment. To finish off then, I want to offer a few last questions to help you with discerning conflicts and working through them based on what I've said in this episode. First question is, in what ways are desires being dominated by a particular default or instinct such that needs have become more difficult to find or define? Second question is, what is the locus of faith in the conflict for each person involved? And then the third question is, what does everyone really need? Remember that needs need to be articulated in very specific terms to avoid misunderstandings and even more conflict. And that, my friends, is that. I totally get how this series falls short of being something completely comprehensive, but in closing I can recommend a few things. First, this does fit rather well with the series I did on the Enneagram previously, so you can have a listen to that if you want more detail. Um, Self-understanding, I think, is crucial for developing um, a better understanding of how we relate to others. Second, if you do want to get more detail on the instinctual variants, definitely read Beatrice Chestnut's work. And third, if you want to gain some profound insights into having better conversations around conflict, I cannot recommend Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication highly enough. It is so illuminating, um, and it's certainly far more illuminating than, than I've been able to convey in this and the previous episode. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. If you've managed to get this far, I I, my, I tip my hat to you, even though I'm not wearing a hat. Um, what I can say is that there is some really exciting stuff coming up in the episodes that follow, um, and I really hope you will join me for that. Take care. Thank you.